Just a quick update before today's show. For the past 10 months, we've been working on our biggest project to date, the Holistic Psychotherapy Summit. This is a free online event which aims to provide mental health professionals with the most essential ideas for practicing effective psychotherapy in the coming decade. It will cover mind, brain, body, and spiritual approaches to healing. It features exclusive interviews with 30 of the world's leading clinical psychologists, professors, and psychotherapists, giving you insights into their best practices and frameworks they use with their clients. You'll be learning directly from the likes of Stephen Porges, Dan Siegel, Janina Fisher, Paul Gilbert, Pat Ogden, Stephen Hayes, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Richard Schwartz, Mick Cooper, and 29 others. The best bit is, it's completely free to attend live, and you can register today by going to bit.ly forward slash pod hyphen summit. That's bit.ly forward slash pod hyphen summit. Okay, everybody, welcome back to our third and final session today. I'm joined here by Logan Yuri. So we're actually doing something a bit different than our normal sort of lecture and Q&A format. This is actually going to be a live interview. So I'm going to be asking Logan questions about her, her most recent book, How to Not Die Alone. And yeah, so it should be fun. Let's give it a go. Um, so yeah, Logan is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach and the best-selling author of How to Not Die Alone. As the Director of Relationship Science at the Dating App Hinge, she leads a research team dedicated to helping people find love. After studying psychology at Harvard, she ran Google's behavioral science team, The Irrational Lab. Logan's work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Time, The Washington Post, GQ, Glamour, Vice, on HBO, BBC, and she was a featured speaker at South by Southwest in 2021. You can learn more about her work at www.loganurie.com. So, Logan, it's great to have you with us here today. Um, thank you for taking the time. Um, so just to get started, let's just dive right in. So the, the last line of your book is Intentionally Ever After. And I saw you drinking from a mug earlier that has the same slogan. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm just curious, you know, um, why is intention so important um, when it comes to relationships? And also, why do you think there's a cultural aversion sort of against like having this sort of like this sort of mindset towards towards our, our love life? That's a great question to kick us off, because I really feel like intentionality is at the root of everything that I do. And so what I mean by intentional dating or intentional love is really being thoughtful about what you're doing, about who you are, about what kind of relationship you want, and then really using that thoughtfulness throughout the process. And so in my book, it might mean being thoughtful about, hey, why am I single? And what are the patterns that are holding me back? And how can I change them? Or when you get in a relationship, being thoughtful about, are we moving in together for the right reasons? Is it because my lease is up and I want to move in with you? Or is it because you know we're, we're seeing if we want to get married? And so really having that thoughtfulness throughout the way. And I... I feel and relationship research has found that when people decide their way through relationship milestones, instead of sliding their way through relationship milestones, they are more successful as a couple, they are happier, they even have more sex. And so really this intentionality is a great way to pursue relationships. That being said, people often have an aversion to it because they like to feel like relationships are on this special planet, right? So it might be like, we have nutrition and that's scientific. We have exercise, we have finances, but no, love is up here. Love is on its planet of its own. And people don't want to apply thoughtfulness or science or rigor because they want it to be something that um, cannot be analyzed, is magical, is chemical. And while love does involve a lot of chemicals and, you know, is this great explosion of oxytocin and serotonin and things like that. At the end of the day, it's one of the most important parts of our lives. And so why shouldn't we apply rigorous research to it? And so really where I'm coming from is we have all this information from academia about what works. Why would we not tell people what that is so that they can go and make better decisions for themselves, break their bad habits. And as I say, live intentionally ever after. 100%. So I suppose that leads us well into the next question. You know, 
um, you're a behavioral scientist. Um, so what is behavioral science and how can it help improve our, our dating lives? Yeah, so behavioral science is the study of how we make decisions. Some of the most famous people in the field are people like who we were chatting about before, Dan Ariely, he wrote a great book called Predictably Irrational, which we were just chatting about. And there's also Daniel Kahneman who wrote the famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And so behavioral science is really breaking down how people make decisions and then what are the set of biases, these cognitive biases, these clouds in judgment that make it hard for us to make good decisions. And so we often make decisions that are against our own best interest. And so let's say you are trying to lose weight. You might say to yourself, tomorrow is going to be a great eating day and I'm going to eat so healthy. And then you get to work and somebody brought in donuts and boom, there goes your diet. You're eating these donuts that are against what you want. Maybe you want to save more money for when you retire and you have a savings plan, but there's a sale from your favorite furniture store and suddenly you're buying an expensive rug. And so why are we making these decisions? And so I take that field and I combine it with the field of relationship science. Relationship science is the study of how love works, how attraction works, what matters for long-term relationships. And so I take the two and I combine them. And I really think, why are people making decisions in dating and love that are against their own best interests? Let's just break that down. And then how can I give them advice that helps them break those bad patterns and makes new ones? And so it might be, okay, you're version of love is that you fall for someone, they reject you, you chase them. And then for the rest of your life, you're always trying to convince somebody to fall in love with you. And it's really about that chase. Okay. Well, that pattern isn't serving you. What if we actually rewire it so that you think, oh, I want to find somebody who chooses me back. And how can we help you actually make that change? And it's in breaking that bad habit that people go from being single or perpetually in unhealthy relationships to really finding what they're looking for. That's really interesting. So whenever you're working with clients through your coaching practice, how do you work with them to help them identify their patterns? Yes. So I've been doing this for a long time. And I think really one of the gifts that I have, something that I'm really proud of is pattern recognition and just really being able to see, okay, so, you know, this client is presenting with this case, but I had a client two years ago who they weren't demographically similar, but I'm hearing them say different things. And it's almost like my brain is tracking all these different people and putting them into constellations. And so one of the things that came out of that was this framework I have called the three dating tendencies. And so this is saying across so many clients that I've had, they tend to fall into the same buckets. And these buckets are the romanticizer, the maximizer, and the hesitator. And the romanticizer, what's holding them back is they have these unrealistic expectations of love. They expect you have a soulmate. They'll look exactly the way you thought. You'll have this very cute rom-com meet cute and you will fall happily ever after. And if it's the right person, it'll be easy. And the second kind, the maximizer, they have unrealistic expectations of their partner. They think, okay, this ex of mine had this quality, this ex had this quality. I'll just find someone who has the best of each quality, and I'm just going to keep looking until I find them. And then the hesitator has unrealistic expectations of themselves. So they're thinking, I can't date yet. I, I need to get a more impressive job. I need to clean my apartment. I need to... Um, you know, move to a different city and, and, and find myself. And so they're not even dating because they feel like they are not lovable yet and they need to be ready to date. And so when I work with clients, the first thing I do is do an intake of them and understand what are the things they're telling me about their mindset? What is their past relationship history? Are they dating right now? What are the themes that are coming up in terms of why they're single? I even have them do a homework assignment before we first meet where they text their friends and family and they say, Hey, I'm working with this woman. Why do you think I'm single? And they send me these Google docs full of screenshots and answers. And sometimes it says a bunch of people saying you're too picky, a bunch of people saying you're amazing, but you don't put yourself out there. And so really in the beginning, I'm taking all this information in and I'm trying to do pattern recognition and saying, okay, I have a rough sketch of who you are. And now let's try on some different techniques and tactics to see if we can shift that behavior. I love that approach. I think it would be terrifying though to send a text to everybody. <laughs> Why am I single? You know, <laughs> I, it's terrifying, but some, you know, I, it's on purpose terrifying because 
it helps us put out there that we're doing this. So there's really great research on the power of identity that was done by researchers at Stanford and Harvard. And so we, we all play different roles in our lives, right? So I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a Rihanna fan. I have all these different identities. But what they found in this research is that if you reinforce a particular part of somebody's identity, you can actually shift how they behave. And so they said, um, in polling research, they went to one group of people and they said, um, are you planning to vote in the election tomorrow? And they said to another group of demographically similar people, is it important to you to be a voter? And so for the people whose identity was reinforced as a voter, they found that in the election the next day, they were 11% more likely to show up and vote. And these were, of course, randomly assigned groups, but because they had reinforced the identity of voter, those people actually made a plan and showed up. And so for me, a lot of the work I'm trying to do is reinforce in people's mind the identity of being a dater. And so if saying to your friends, hey, I'm single and I'm looking for someone and I'm doing something about it, that tells your friend she's taking this seriously. Maybe I should set her up with someone. It really helps reinforce like in this moment in 2022 or whenever it is, I am working on this thing. And that actually helps propel you forward to take action. 100%. Um, so what are the most common mistakes clients are coming to you? Like, what are the most common mistakes people are making in their dating lives that you're, you've noticed? And speaking of patterns. Yeah, a big pattern that I've noticed, and I, I've really even been thinking more about this since my book came out and just, you know, a, a big thing that I notice is that people are so obsessed with the type, right? So somebody will walk in my office and he'll say, Logan, I know exactly what I'm looking for. Um, I just haven't found that person. And so they have this type in mind and they think it's really about the search for that person. But so often what shift people need to make is actually realizing that this so-called type is not actually the right fit for them. And so you might think, um, oh, I love um, artistic people who drive me crazy and there's so much passion and I never know what they're going to do. That keeps me on my toes. And I'm like, do you love it? Because you actually seem very anxious and you're telling worried this person's going to leave you. And maybe actually what you're looking for is someone who's a little safer, who you can create this domestic bliss with, who you can co-create your life with. And that was really fun when you were in high school and you were addicted to the drama, but hey, you're 40 years old. Like it's time to grow up and grow past that manic pixie dream girl or that bad boy on the motorcycle. And so a lot of the work I do with people early on is saying this so-called type of yours, it's not a matter of finding that person. It's actually a matter of blowing that up. And so part of getting rid of the type is also getting rid of the checklist, right? I'm sure you've seen this. People say, oh, um, she needs to be over uh, or more likely he, he needs to be over six feet tall and make a six figure income. Or people will say to me, she has to be a skinny redhead who is from the South and all of these different things. And so I really try to help people throw out the checklist, blow up the type, be more open-minded and understand that we may not know who makes us happiest long-term. And that's okay. That's beautiful. We can be surprised by who we end up with. And that's often the romantic inspirational fun part of this is actually seeing who do I gel with as opposed to, oh, I know exactly who I need and now I just have to find. So from reading your book, it's quite evident that you're not, you're not a fan of uh, types, but you're also uh, not a fan <laughs> of the spark as well. Can you tell us about your thoughts on this concept of the spark? Yeah. So this is very much informed by my coaching because I do dating coaching. I've also dabbled in matchmaking and I always pay attention. I, I love this word, the debrief, right? It's like after somebody goes on a date, let's debrief the date. How did it go? Do you like them? And so I had this male client who was very charming. I loved meeting with him. He was super proactive. He always did his homework. And he came over one day after a date and I said, how did the date go? And he said, oh, the guy was cute. It He was interesting. It was a great date. It was a lot of fun. I'm not going to see him again. I was like, what are you talking about, Jonathan? Like you just described a great date. And he's like, I just didn't feel the spark. And so the spark has become to me almost my enemy in the work that I'm doing because I find that people put so much emphasis on it. 
And so what I mean by the spark, of course, is that feeling of you walk in the room and everyone else fades into the background and you feel wise and rainbows and it's as if you've known them your whole life. And I've definitely felt the spark before and it feels amazing. I'm not denying that there is such a thing as a spark, but I think that when in long-term dating, looking for your lifetime partner, you're optimizing for the spark, that is a problem. And so my three main myths of the spark. So one is that if you don't have the spark, it can't grow over time. And that's definitely not true. We know from research that only 11% of successful, happy couples felt love at first sight. We know that because of the mere exposure effect, the more that you see someone or are around them, the more you like them. That's why you often like music more over time. It's why if somebody lives in your dorm hallway, you might develop a crush on them. Just seeing them more often leads to liking them more. And that's why the spark can grow in a workplace, in a school environment, in your apartment building. Um, it can definitely develop. The second myth is that if you feel the spark, then it must be a good thing. And that's definitely not true. And even I've noticed this more and more in my life that some people are just really sparky. They might be very hot. They might be very charismatic. Every time you interact with them, you're like, oh, there's something between us. But guess what? Everyone who interacts with them also feels that way. And it's a reflection of who they are. They're sparky, less so a reflection of what's developing between you. And as a sidebar, some of those sparky people can be manipulative or narcissistic. And so it could actually be a red flag, not a green one. And the third myth is that if you have a spark, the relationship is viable. And that's not true because many couples who are now divorced or in unhappy relationships started off with a spark. And so the spark is enough to light that fire and get you into a relationship, but it's definitely not enough to sustain you over time. And so people really need to understand, maybe I felt a spark with this person, but it doesn't mean that we should stay together just for that initial moment. And so a lot of the work that I do with people is say, forget the spark and go after the slow burn. Go after the person who gets better each time you see them, who you like more and more, and really understand that some of the best people in the world who would make amazing partners, they are not sparky and they are these hidden gems and we have to uncover them and understand that they take time to open up. But when you meet them, they really provide so much value and happiness and fulfillment. They're just not as sparky. 100%. Like I, I've been in relationships where I've, I've felt that at the start and it's amounted to nothing. And then I've been like my, probably my best long-term relationship. It was, um, I didn't feel that strongly at the start. And then each, each week it got better and better and it grew over time, you know? So I think you're spot on there. Yeah. And then with the charisma thing, like it sort of reminds me, like I have, I have a friend who's like, who would be amazing in job interviews, but I know working with him <laughs> long time would be an absolute nightmare. <laughs> That's so, such a good example. I've never thought about that connection, but it's true. It's like, do job interviews even test for the right? Well, can I make you? How good at storytelling am I? Can I convince you that I'm the right person? But what actually is really good is um, sitting down and spending a day with somebody and co-creating something or having them do a take-home work assignment, because then you actually get to see how are they in the role <clears throat> excuse me, as opposed to how are they interviewing? And dating is just so completely the same thing. It's like making a dating app profile has nothing to do with it's like to be in a relationship. So somebody with the best profile could be a poor partner and someone with a mediocre profile could actually be great because these things are not really relevant skills to the actual work at hand. Definitely, definitely. Um, so we're now we're going to get into the three dating tendencies. Before I do, though, everybody, we're going to do a Q&A at the end. So if you've got any questions, remember to add them for, to the Q&A tab. Um, we can invite you into the room. So, yeah, the three dating tendencies, which you mentioned earlier. So the maximizer, the romanticizer and the uh, hesitator. Um, how can somebody tell which category they fall into? Yeah. So in my book and on my website, so it's at loganyuri.com slash quiz. I have a quiz that people can take and people love the quiz. And it's really a way to just see what are the main beliefs that you have. So it might be something around, um, I believe that there's a soulmate out there for me, or I believe that I'm not ready to date yet. And if I met my partner right now, you know, they would reject me because I'm not good enough. And so sometimes people actually are 
a few of these and then they email me like, am I screwed? Am I going to die alone? What do I do? I'm scoring highly in all of these, but it can be really interesting to see what the most dominant one is. And so if you're not dating at all, then I would say the dominant one is the hesitator, because even if you have romanticizer or maximizer thoughts, if you're really not dating, then the hesitator one is coming through. And for other people, I noticed that the maximizer tendency is the strongest one because it's really all about, oh, I'm fine. I don't need to change. I just haven't found the perfect person yet. And so <clears throat> um, people can take that quiz. People can read the book, but they can also just self-identify. If when I described the three types before, you were like, oh, that's me. You often have a gut reaction that's correct. And I found that if you don't know what you are, but you describe them to your best friend, our friends are often have great insight into what we're doing. And um, I've even done this scientifically in terms of take, giving the quiz. They think they are having them ask their best friends what they think they are. And their best friends are often more accurate because they are not blinded by the blind spots holding that single person back. Got you, got you. Um, Lally, if you're listening, if you could just link that in the chat as well, the quit Logan's quiz, you'll find on our website. Um, I'd really appreciate it. Um, so let's start with the romanticizer tendency. Um, what if someone does figure out that they are a romanticizer? Um, what can they do to sort of like, I don't want to say overcome it, but just account for this and make sure it doesn't ruin their their dating life or their love life? Yeah. So. The romanticizer is a hard one. I feel like I've made a few romanticizer clients cry, which I maybe feel embarrassing, but I also am proud of it because it's the change that they need to make. And so with the romanticizer, I often sit them down and I'm like, you are too focused on what this person is going to look like. Your whole life you said, I can envision my wedding and I'm going to walk down the aisle and this is what my bride or groom will look like. And oh, we're going to meet in this romantic way where we're going to go to a farmer's market and reach for the tomato at the same time. And honestly, it sounds kind of naive when I say it, but these are real things that people tell me where they have a vision in their head. Or they say something like, oh, obviously this wasn't the right person for me because it was too much work. And we were constantly having to negotiate things like money and timing and things like that. And it shouldn't be that way. It should be effortless. And so sometimes I just say to them, I'm like, that's a fairy tale. And I don't know, you know, I do know where you got these cultural scripts from, whether it's rom-coms or Disney movies or um people portraying their lives on Instagram, but that's not actually how relationships work. And so often the person looks different from what you expect or relationships are hard. And if you're doing work, that's correct. And so that first moment is really just open the romanticism mindset, saying these are the things that are valid and that you should continue. And these are the things where there's actually an opportunity to make a change. And so there is a great framework called the soulmate mindset versus the work it out mindset. And the soulmate mindset is if it's the right person, it should be effortless. And the work it out mindset is really that whole thing around relationships take effort. And so really helping them give up on some of those things, like what the person will look like, and then helping them move towards a world where maybe this person is different from what they expected, but they're both putting in the work and it feels great. And so for the romanticizer, it is honestly a hard conversation, but when they give up on some of those unrealistic beliefs, it helps them. And so they say to me, I, I can hear this so clearly in my mind. They're like, you, you want me to give up on my love story and you want me to settle. And I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with settling. I want you to be flexible on the things that don't matter. And I want you to double down on the things that do. That, that makes a lot of sense. And it sort of reminds me of Carl Dweck's sort of concept of the growth mindset, just applied to relationships. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the, the soulmate mindset is the, is the equivalent of the fixed mindset and the work it out mindset is more like the, the growth mindset. Yeah, I think that's a great application. And having a growth mindset is absolutely correlated with having a great relationship because when you encounter problems, you don't just say like, I give up, this isn't my skill. You're like, okay, we can tackle this together. Cool, cool. Okay, so for uh, how would you recommend maximizers account for their weaknesses? And maybe we could talk here about secretary problem as well. I think that'd sure. be cool to discuss. Yeah, so the thing about maximizers, they also hate that S word settle. They feel like everything in life can be researched, right? If they want to 
um, find the perfect Bluetooth headphones, if they want to buy the best electric car, whatever it is, they can just research their way to the right answer. And the issue with this framework is that you're constantly thinking, oh, the perfect person is one swipe away. I just have to turn over that stone and suddenly I'll find the right person. And so what I try to help the maximizers understand is that it's not about the pursuit of the perfect person and then the relationship will be easy. It's about finding somebody great and together building this relationship. And that actually it's empowering. It's you have the ability to create long-term lasting love, but what you need to do is actually focus on the effort of the relationship and not just finding this so-called perfect person. And so what the secretary problem is, is it's actually an application of a line of mathematical inquiry called optimal stop theory. And so this is really a fancy way of saying when you're doing a search, at what point should you stop? Because of course there's resources that are used in a search and you want to get to the answer sooner rather than later. So in this example, imagine that you are hiring for the role of a secretary and you have 100 possible candidates. You go through each one, one at a time. And at the end of each interview, you say, yes or no, I'm going to hire this person and you can't go back. And so the question becomes, when should you actually hire somebody? And so the mathematically correct answer is that you interview a third of the candidates. So 33 people. You say, who was the single best candidate from that first 33? That person is now your benchmark candidate. The next time that you find somebody who you like as much or more than that candidate, you immediately hire them. And the point is that um, you don't want to wait too long because what if all the good people are at the beginning? What if, You don't want to wait too short because you haven't seen what's out there, but 33% lets you see what's out there, see who the best is, and then find that. And so the application for dating is that um, we don't know how many people you're going to date in your life, right? But we may be able to say, let's say you're going to date from age 18 to age 40. And I'm actually pulling this from a great book called Algorithms to Live By. So in Algorithms to Live By, they say, if you're going to date for those years, what's 33% of the way through that age? It's actually 26.1 years old. And so by the time you're 26, you've likely already dated some people. Who is the single best person from that group? That is now your benchmark partner. The next time where you find someone who you like as much or more than that person, commit to them and try to build a relationship with them. And I know some people out there listening might be like, oh, I'm, they're rolling their eyes and they're saying, what is she talking about? 26.1, this is so American or so unrealistic, but it's honestly taken as a metaphor. Take it as the idea that you likely have already met some great people. And the point is the next time you meet someone who's similarly great, invest in them. Don't just keep saying, well, if he exists, somebody better might exist. It's about mm. not falling for the trap of constantly looking for the perfect best person and instead recognizing what's great and investing in it. A hundred percent. Just going back to what you're saying about settling at the start. Um, I don't know if you've read uh, 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Um, have you, have you seen that book? I, I, my husband and I listened to a bit of it in the car, but I don't know if I'll get every reference to it, but I, I really, really liked it. And I thought it was a very fascinating concept because like they sort of sell it as a productivity book, but it's actually more about like just how futile it is to try to make to-do lists and be productive and all of that. But I'd love to hear the application. Yeah, no, he has a line that just stuck in my head. It was it was actually about relationship. It was just like refusing to settle is a form of settling in itself. And what you're choosing mm. to settle on when, when you refuse to settle is like to spend your life or spend years on dating apps and all of these different things, you know. So it's like you're making a choice by not making a choice almost, you know. And I find I find that is sort of just a good framework. And one of the things I like that you said in the book, Logan, was around no matter what decision we make. Uh, after we make the decision, we're always going to rationalize it anyway. We're always going to sort of like invent a reason as to why that was the best decision we could have made. And I think that is, can actually be a good way to, 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 to make up our minds and move forward. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So as humans, we have this very powerful rationalization brain, rationalization machine in our brains. And so our brains tend to be very, very good at rationalizing whatever decision we make. And so in the book, I talk about it, you know, if you buy a coat that you can return, 
you bring it home, you hang it on the back of your door and you look at the coat and you say, is it the right color for me? Do I really want it? Is it expensive? Is it too similar to what I already have? And you make this pro con list and you're constantly in decision mode. And you might actually convince yourself, even if you keep it, that it wasn't the perfect coat because you have all these cons in your head. Whereas if you buy a coat final sale, you bring it home and you're, you've already made the decision and you're like, this is a great coat. And your brain convinces you and it basically post-rationalizes why this is a great decision. And so for people who are good at decision-making, they might have high expectations or high standards, but once they find something that satisfies those demands, then they commit to that decision. They allow the rationalization to take over and they feel good about it. And we call those people satisficers. But then there are those maximizers out there who are always looking and never satisfied. And so they're, they're constantly doing the research. And even if they end up with an objectively better choice than the satisficers, the satisficers are happier about the decision they made. And so what's more important in life, to be right or to be happy? And so I personally, having learned about all of this, have really tried to embody this in my own life where some decisions are worth maximizing for. And sometimes it's worth, um, you know, having that mindset, but you can just satisfy and you can just say, I am choosing the good enough that is going to make me way happier than spending weeks um, harping on, did I make the right decision or not? And actually sort of being in anguish about the perfect choice. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. I think there's a lot of power in that. Um, so let's talk now about uh, how to avoid common hesitator pitfalls. Like what, what can people do to prevent, or if they're a hesitator, what can they do to sort of not be, not let that ruin their relationships? Yeah, so what's helpful for the hesitators is often just setting a deadline. And I know that seems simple, but there's tons of research about the power of deadlines. For example, there's this fun research that if I give you a gift certificate to a bakery and I say that you can use this gift certificate in the next three weeks versus the next three months, which one would you choose? What sounds better to you? I would probably take the three months one just so I have the option. Yeah. Right. We would take the three months one. We have the option. Who knows when I'll be near that bakery? I want more flexibility. We would always choose more freedom. But when they do this experiment, they find that people with the three weeks gift certificate are much more likely to redeem it. And that's because they say, I only have three weeks. That's a finite amount of time. It's, it's coming soon. I'm going to make a plan about meeting my friend there and using the gift certificate with the three months. We're just like, oh, it'll happen when it happens. And then it never happens. And so there's tons of research about the power of deadlines. And so for a hesitator, I would say no one is ever 100% ready for dating. And if you have a story in your head that you're going to do all this inner work, then go date and be this really desirable partner and someone will fall for you, that's actually false because the only way to get better at dating is by actually dating. And you can do things in parallel. You can read a book on attachment. You can go to therapy. You can go to the gym. Things that you think make you a more attractive partner. Great, go do that, but do it in parallel with actually dating and get better at dating. And so convincing them that they are ready to date giving them a deadline. I often like the deadline of three weeks, kind of as a coincidence and say to them, okay, three weeks from what does that mean to you? And so nowadays it often means getting the app. Maybe it means having a few outfits ready, having a few first date ideas ready, maybe even practicing a video date if you haven't done one before. And so really taking dating out of something from, oh, I'll date in the future, I'll date in the fall, I'll date next year to that identity piece. I am a dater, I am dating now, and here are the specific steps that I'm taking to get me closer to that goal. Definitely, definitely. That's great advice. All right. So our first talk today was on healing attachment wounds. And there's a chapter in your book on attachment styles and how these influence our relationships. So why, why is it so important to understand our attachment style when, when in a relationship? Yes. Well, I'm sure this was covered in depth in the talk this morning, but attachment theory is one of the most rigorously researched elements of relationship science. And it really goes back to um, developmental psychology and understanding children's relationships to their primary caregiver. And what we find is that these patterns of being anxiously attached or avoidant attached, these insecure attachment styles often show up in 
unhealthy or unfortunate ways in our adult romantic relationships. And so if you're anxiously attached, that might show up as, um, you know, you love the chase. You believe that anyone you like will pull away from you. You feel like you need to be constantly in touch because you have fear of abandonment. Um, if your partner is traveling, your, your brain goes to a bad place where you're imagining they met somebody else. And so you can get into this danger zone and you constantly need to be soothed by someone else to, to ensure that you're connected. For people who are avoiding attach, they actually feel like they can't trust other people. They can't trust that that person's not going to eventually leave them. And so they actually push people away and they won't develop those ties in the first place. They don't feel comfortable with intimacy. They feel like they're being smothered. And so these are the daters who say things like, you know, you're hanging out with them on a Friday night and it's going great. And then all of a sudden they're like, I need you to leave right now. I have a really busy day tomorrow and you're in my space. And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Like, I thought we were having fun, but something is triggering them where they feel like they need to push you back. And they have all these deactivating, they have these protest behavior strategies. And of course we have securely attached people who are our super relationships, also comfortable being alone. And if they need space, they'll tell you. If they feel upset about something, they'll let you know. And so really step one is understanding your attachment style. And step two is really understanding what are the triggers that often activate it. So it might be spending too much time together and not knowing when you're going to have alone time or when um, your partner goes to a conference and you feel like there's going to be a lot of people around who they could flirt with and how can they be in touch more. And it's also learning um, self-soothing techniques. So convincing yourself like, I trust this person, we're doing great. Um, I don't have to worry or even distracting yourself. And so really it's like you have your best self, your comfort zone, you have this activated um, danger zone. And what are all the things that you can do early on to keep yourself out of the danger zone, knowing that when you're in the danger zone, you're not your best self. And that's really when you can alienate and push people away, away, excuse me, because of your attachment style. That's great. That's great. Okay. So now, whenever someone is, you know, they start dating others and they are, yeah, they're starting to get into this kind of the rhythm of dating. Um, what sort of characteristics would you recommend that people look for in a long-term partner? Yeah. So I have done a lot of research into what matters and what doesn't for long-term relationship success. And so some of the things that matter less than we think. Um, these are the things that matter less than people think they do. So the first one is looks. Of course, you want to be attracted to your partner. Of course, you want to feel excited about them. But the thing about looks is that um, we tend to adapt to looks over time. So even if you have the hottest partner in the world, you just get used to what they look like. And you don't wake up every day saying, oh, my partner is so attractive. And so looks matter, but only to an extent because you actually adapt to whatever your surroundings are, including your very attractive partner. Same thing goes with money. There's tons of research about at what point does our happiness max out on money? And I recently just saw interesting research, I believe it's from Matt Killingsworth, that talks about if you had to score happiness from one to 100, the difference between making $100,000 a year, that might be a 64. And if you make $600,000 a year, that might be um, a 65. And so people spend their entire lives trying to make these huge amounts of money and how much does it actually affect your happiness? And th this is a similar thing to the adaptation thing. We adapt to the surroundings. So you get used to your fancy house and your fancy cars. And let's be honest, it's often not how rich am I, but it's how much richer am I than my neighbors? And when your peer group becomes wealthier, you actually feel less wealthy. And so those are two things that matter, but less than we think they do. The same thing goes for being the same as your partner. People say, oh, I'm so extroverted. I could never date her. She's so introverted. It's like, well, maybe that's actually a great partnership for you and you complement each other. And so it often has to do with people that bring out the best in you not being the same. And that's the same thing for hobbies. You do not have to share hobbies with your partner so long as you allow them to pursue and enjoy their hobbies without begrudging them the hobbies. In terms of the category of what matters more than we think we do, some people might say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, knew that, I knew that this mattered, but I don't see the average dater optimizing for this. And so the first one is kindness, and the second one is emotional stability. And so we have research and tied to 
science of happily ever after research on this, looking at just the importance of a partner who is emotionally stable, who understands how to self-soothe, who is in touch with their emotional availability and emotional intelligence and how much that matters over time. And kindness, who doesn't want a kind partner? This is a great way to go through the, the thick and thin. Similarly, loyalty matters. Loyalty has a huge impact on, is this somebody who's in it just for the good times or will be with you long-term? Then also the ability to fight well together. Sometimes couples say, oh, we never fight. It's so great. It's like, no, fighting is a realistic, um, inevitable part of relationships. And it's much more about learning how to fight well versus not fighting at all. And fight well means you're open to influence from somebody else. You're willing to compromise. And most importantly, that you can actually repair and make up later. And then finally, the one that I really like is the ability uh, the, is what side of you does this other person bring out? And so relationships are not just who am I, who are you? It's who are we together? Awesome. Awesome. And I think some, something you said I really like was just, you know, why it's really important to consider what side of you the person brings out, like how are you whenever you're, you're around them? You know, I think that's, maybe expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And so this kind of goes back to that checklist mentality or having the type, right? There's this idea that I want a person who has this career or makes this amount of money. It's very much about the bio data, the biography of that person. I want people to shift towards who am I around them? And so I have so many clients who have gone on a date and the person is exactly who they thought they wanted, but something about that person brings out a competitive side of them, or it reminds them of their unloving dad who was always pushing them to be better and they were never good enough. And so you don't know who you are around someone until you actually go on a date with them and see that. And this is why humans are so fascinating. This is why matchmaking algorithms are really hard because it's not just, I have these 10 qualities, you have these 10 qualities, we work. It's, we actually are made up of so many different things with pasts and trauma and triggers and things like that, that when these two people come together in a bad way, and that's not the relationship you want to be in. And so when you date someone and you say, it feels like being home, I feel comfortable. I feel like I'm my best self around them. They make me feel attractive. They make me feel desired. They make me feel inspired. Those are much more important than what university did somebody go to or how tall they are. It's really about what's unfolding between the two of you together and not who are they on paper or on, on LinkedIn. I love that. And I think that can be applied to all that, all relationships in our lives. Well, you could apply that to yeah. friends. Like there's some people that you're just around and it just brings a really good side of you to the surface, you know, and it just flows really well. It's sort of like, I think Anthony DeMello says, it's sort of like, do, do you like the music you play whenever you get uh, together with this person? It's like, you're making music together through the, through the relationship, you know? Um, so I think, Another thing I want to just ask about Logan was about the importance of the other significant other. Can you tell us about this concept as well? Yeah, sure. So the other significant other or the OSO, uh, this term was defined by Eli Finkel, who's a great relationship science at Northwestern. And he was working with Elaine Chung, who's a grad student of his. And they did an experiment that found that when couples have different people that they go to in their lives for different things, for example, who do you go to when you talk, want to talk about politics? Who do you go to when you want to talk about work drama? Who do you go to when you want to exercise? If they have different people in their lives for different things, those relationships are actually stronger. And so the reason is when you expect to get all of your needs met from one partner, it actually puts a ton of pressure on them. And so in modern society where we're less connected to a community, maybe we're less connected to a religious institution or a volunteer institution, there's a feeling of I should get all my needs met from my primary partner. And to be honest, most people's partner are not qualified to do all of those things. And so when you actually have OSOs, other significant others, people who you rely on to play different roles in your life, roles that they are better suited, this actually really serves those relationships. And so I'm not talking about open relationships or polyamory. I'm really just talking about within the confines of your life, who is the person you call to talk to about online shopping? Who is the person you call to to complain about your boss? Oftentimes that person is not your partner. And that's actually a good thing because you are investing in lots of people in your community. And then you should still go to your partner for many things, but not all of the things. Yeah, I can see how that would make a, 
a relationship so much more resilient the fact that you don't just depend on one person for for everything you know yeah um all right so let's talk now a little bit about online dating like what what would you say are the common mistakes that people make on online dating platforms that we should avoid yeah so a lot of the themes that we already spoke about today are really consistent here so one of them is just being too specific about your type and then using that to limit your search parameters. So on a lot of the apps, you can say, I want to date someone who's of this specific age, you know, given age range, this specific height, give max and min, this specific geographic region. But if we take, if we go back to the premise I spoke about earlier, you may not know who's going to make you happiest long term. Then when you actually make these parameters very specific, it's as if you're a club and you have a bouncer and you're not even letting these people into your club. And so one of the first pieces of advice that I give to people is, can you extend your age uh, max and min on your app? Can you expand your geographic region? Can you be less focused on height, which we know does not impact long-term relationship satisfaction? Another issue I see with people in the app is that they just don't put enough effort into their profile. Your profile is extremely important. It's your one chance to make a great first impression. And so sometimes people are like, oh, that's embarrassing. I, I'm too cool to spend time. It's like, no, like you're in the app. I'm on the app. We're here to meet people. You really want to put your best foot forward. And so a couple tips there for a great profile are having a really strong photo that shows what your face looks like clearly with no filters, no sunglasses, having at least one photo that shows your full body. That's something that people are looking for when we've done research on this. Um, showing you with people that you love, show us that you have friends, that you have family, show us your life in context. You're really telling a story and you're really showing us this is what it would be like to date me. And so that should be a combination of pictures and responses to prompts that really paint a picture of who you are. And so having a profile is a very functional way of meeting somebody. It's saying, here's who I am. Is this interesting to you? And let's meet up in person to see what side of each other we bring out. Awesome. Awesome. This is like a crash course in, uh, in all yeah. aspects of relationships. Um, all right. So Next, let's discuss um, dating itself. So whenever you're, you're actually, you're off the app and you're actually dating in person. Um, one of the things I find most interesting about the book was the research you mentioned from Richard Wiseman, who, who's actually spoke at the Wigan University like wow. in, in London. Yeah, he's just, he's an absolute genius. Um, so can you tell us about why having a lucky mindset matters when it comes to dating and how people can cultivate one? Yeah, so my extrapolation of the Wiseman research is just the importance of mindset in dating. And whether you think the date will go well, or you think the date will go poorly, you're right. And so oftentimes, when I work with people, I just notice how negative their mindset is, right? They come in, they cross their arms, and they say, it hasn't worked the last 100 times. Why is it going to work this time? And when I'm around them, I just see, oh, of course, it's not going to work when you have that mindset, because you are going in looking for people's flaws, looking for confirmation that this is not the right fit. And so as hard as it is to manifest a mindset of optimism, when you've had a lot of bad luck, or you've had a lot of false starts, and I get how hard that is, it really matters. Because when we feel like the universe is on our side, or what my friend calls pronoia, we look for evidence that shows us that we're right. And so really putting yourself in a positive mindset, I have this technique called a pre-date ritual where you're listening to pump up music, you're calling your best friend, you're listening to stand-up comedy before a date helps put you in a mindset for optimism and connection. And it could really help these dates go better because you walk in thinking it only has to work with one person and maybe this could be that person. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So any advice for actually meeting people in real life as opposed to on the apps? Yeah. So a few of the techniques I recommend, one of them is just asking your friends and family. I know this might seem obvious, but it really takes that extra step of saying, Hey, I'm ready to find someone. Do you know someone great? Who could you recommend? And might even write them a text that says like, here's what I'm looking for. Here's a few photos of me and a little bit about me. Feel free to send this to a few people. And maybe once a month I get an email like this from a friend or an acquaintance. And I say, hey, this person's really putting themselves out there in a vulnerable way. And that makes me put extra effort into looking for someone for them because I know how much it means to them and they're willing to be vulnerable about it. 
Another thing I have is a technique called the events decision matrix. And so this is actually saying of all the events that you could go to, knowing that events are great ways to meet people, what are the right events to actually meet someone? And so you take every event and you plot them on this matrix, right? And so one of the axes, one of the axes is um, likelihood of meeting somebody. So, you know, what is the likelihood of interaction? Is this an event where people talk? Is this an event where um, people might ask each other for help, like a bike workshop versus a movie marathon where you're not going to talk to anyone? And then the other axis is um, how likely am I to enjoy this event? And the reason for that is when you enjoy the event, it brings out a great side of you. And even if you don't meet someone, you'll still be happy. And so there's this magical upper right-hand quadrant, which is high likelihood of interaction and high likelihood that I'll enjoy the event. And any events that fall in that upper right-hand quadrant, you should go to those because they are gonna bring out a good side of you and you are likely to meet and interact with people who are similar to you or who, um, are interested in the same thing. And it's just a great way to actually break out of the apps and meet people IRL in real life. Cool, cool. So the weekend university is going to be returning to life events quite soon. So we might actually use great. your matrix to optimize for, yeah. for that. Um, I, I bet that would be a really great way to meet people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so have you got any ideas for fun or interesting first dates to go on for someone that's just looking for, I don't know, just something interesting to do in their first date? Yeah, so one of the elements I like to design for for first dates is the element of play. So there's this thing that when you go on a first date, it can often feel like a job interview, right? It's like almost the dynamic we have right now, although I should be asking you more questions. <laughs> but um, it's like, you know, uh, where did you go to school? What did you study? What's your five-year plan? What are your strengths and weaknesses? It's like, I'm extracting information from you. It's very evaluative. Like I have a list and I'm judging you against it. Are you good enough? And actually what makes people connect is not evaluation, it's experiential. It's, hey, let's go to a park and run around until we pet five dogs. Let's go do um, a taco crawl where we have salsa dripping from our chins and we can't take ourselves too seriously. It's actually having a new experience, creating a memory with someone and having that element of play where you're not taking yourself too seriously and instead you're actually interacting and you're not seeing in a sterile third wave coffee shop, what do I feel like when I'm interviewing you? But really when we're out and about in the world, how do we act as a team? Very cool. Very cool. Um, and one of the things you mentioned as well, is just the, a basic shift in your mindset from uh, having this pressure to sort of be really interesting as opposed to just being interested in the other person, you know, and that takes a lot of the weight off your shoulders. It makes the date more interesting for, for them, but also for you as well. You know, like I was on a date recently and the girl just talked about herself like the whole time. And I was this is this is not fun, you know, but there you go. Have you what do you want to yeah. expand on that? Anything to say there? Sure. Yeah, I think this advice, be interested, not interesting, is helpful in many elements of life because we so often think, oh, at this cocktail party, I can get people to like me by being so interesting and talking about my latest travels and my work. When in reality, what people like is talking about themselves. And so there's great research that shows if two people are talking and person A asks person B a lot of questions about themselves, later person B will say, oh, person A was a great conversationalist. And what it really means is they asked me questions that allowed me to talk about myself. And so when I speak to people, especially during the height of the pandemic, and they were like, how can I go on dates? I'm not interesting. I have nothing to talk about. It's like, well, let's actually have you interested and asking deep, thoughtful, meaningful questions that make the other person feel interesting and less about how much do you have to share about what makes you interesting. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So the, okay. The final thing I want to ask you about is actually the post date eight. Can you tell us what that is and how people can use that tool to, in their dating life? Yeah. So this connects to a lot of the things we talked about today. So I'm anti the checklist, this idea of he or she or they must have all of these qualities, but I am into the idea of reflection. And so I designed this with a client where after dates, I would have her answer these questions when she was walking home or she was in an Uber. And these were eight questions that helped her reflect on the date. And so instead of things like what university did they go to? And are they good enough for me? It was things like, what side of me did they bring out? Did they make me laugh? Did I feel energized or de-energized? And so 
one of the beautiful tricks to the post-date eight is that it actually, during the date itself, helps you recognize those things that matter because you know after the date you're going to need to be responsible for answering them. The other thing I like about the post-date eight is it helps you identify the slow burn. Because ideally with a slow burn, maybe the first date goes pretty well, but you have some questions, but you give them a second date. And then the second date, you like them even more. And ideally with a slow burn, as you're peeling off the layers of the onion and getting to know them more, and they're getting more comfortable, you actually like them more and more. And so that's one of the great ways to recognize a slow burn. Okay, awesome. Well, Logan, thank you so much. Um, I We've tried to you know, pack in a lot there and in, in, into the R. So I just hope people, people have got some value from that. I, I really do recommend checking out Logan's book. Um, it's, it's a fantastic read. There's so much in there. It's practical. It's actionable. And yeah, I really recommend it. Hi, Georgia. Nice to meet you. Hi. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to remember what my question was. Um, <laughs> but basically, and I will say, I think this is relevant. This is, I don't know how much you've worked with people who are lesbians and dating. But like the level of chaos is kind of <laughs> it goes up a notch because um, it gets very interwoven with community. Um, but basically, yeah, I dated a lot, but I would say as I quickly did the quiz and as like a maximizer and a romanticizer, um, which led to causing like I basically had I put a stop to things um because it felt like it was kind of starting to interrupt um, you know, seeing people around and friendships and things like that. Um, and so I was just wondering about advice of like re-entering from a less chaotic perspective, really. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. And yes, um, I have worked with many members of the queer community. And in fact, I, I work at the Dating App Hinge and that's a really big focus of our work right now. And just for me um, to be learning as much as possible about that. In terms of dating from a less chaotic place, one thing that comes to mind for me, and I'm not speaking about generalizations of the lesbian community, but just for you and what I'm hearing from you is, I wonder what you're getting from the chaos. I wonder if there's a little bit of addiction to the drama and is it that it's just exciting? Is it that you like to have something to think about when you're showering and you're like, what will happen here? What will happen there? And so I often find that when people are entrenched in these more chaotic relationships, there's something that they're getting from it. And maybe for right now, that's what you want. Maybe what you want is chaos and other parts of your life are consistent and maybe you're not ready to change. But if you are ready to change, then I would have you really question that behavior and say, um, depending on what I'm looking for, I actually need to move past this chaotic dating stage of my life. And I need to move towards a more secure, committed partnership. And so what comes to mind for me is a lot of the attachment stuff we talked about and that um, you may be anxiously attached and dating somebody who's avoidant attached and you're in this anxious avoidant loop or vice versa. And so really looking at what does a securely attached partner look like? How can you become a more securely attached partner? And sometimes, and obviously I'm just meeting you, Georgia, that can help break that loop. And so many people date in a chaotic, dramatic filled way. And when they make a conscious decision to date differently and date a different type of person, they can break that drama cycle and they can actually find a partner who helps them thrive and break out of it instead of sort of staying close to the ground and always worrying about some of the, the more dramatic details. Great, that sounds really relevant. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Georgia. Nice to meet you. Hi. Okay, Helen. Hi, Hi. yeah. I, I don't know what bit you heard. I'll just sort of repeat it. Oh, so the communication yeah. styles. My partner and I have completely different styles of talking. I'm anxious. He was avoidant. That's what I've learned in the last few months. Um, <laughs> part of the relationship breakup was to do with the fact that we had incompatibilities in the way we communicated with each other and common interests. So I just wonder if I should ever fall into a relationship again and I have a different style of communication. Is it? Is there any way around that, how you can work through it? Is it possible to communicate effectively together? That's yeah, I, I absolutely think that you can jive and have a great relationship with somebody with a different communication style, but it does require work. But I think many, many successful relationships are built from people who are opposites. And so what really matters is not, you know, um, do I prefer to, like, let's say, um, 
you and your partner have a fight at night. Do you want to talk about it at night and deal with it? Or do you want to wake up in the morning because you're more morning people and then have it out? Are you more the people that need to go through every detail or do you just say, I'm sorry, and then do you move on? And so just baseline, lots of couples who are happy and have successful relationships have different communication styles. What actually matters is both caring enough to put in the work to actually get through to the other side. And so a common refrain that I hear that people complain about is I'm really invested in the relationship and I want to put the work in. And my partner just says, no, well, you know, relationships are meant to be felt and not spoken about, or don't beat a dead horse. And so I think it's less about are our styles identical and more about, are we both willing to overcome those differences to invest in building that foundation of trust, that foundation of commitment and working through problems, even if it's uncomfortable. Okay, that's good. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Good luck. Thank you. Logan, thank you so much for everything that you've shared today. I think it's been so valuable. And I think people have, people have got a lot from it. Before you go, um, where would you recommend people to go online? So I teach a class called Date Smarter, which is a six-week uh, virtual interactive class. And so I teach the class once a week and then you're part of a group and you meet with that group and you talk about different ideas and what's holding you back. And I did have several students from the UK in the last one. I'm also launching a one week version of it and it's all live that will be happening at the end of May. And of course, people can check out my book, How to Not Die Alone. People can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Logan Yuri. And then I do have that weekly newsletter that goes out called Logan's Love Letter. So people can subscribe to that on my website. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, Logan, thank you so much. Um, everybody else, I just want to say a huge thank you for tuning in on a Sunday afternoon. Um, don't know about what it's like wherever you are, but it's really sunny here. So I'm keen to go out for <laughs> enjoy some of it. Um, and just a big thank you to Lolly as well in the background, who's managing everything and ensuring this is all run, running smoothly. It's just making such a difference. Um, Logan, I'm just going to say a little bit about our next event here now. Um, just so, yeah. Just want to say thanks very much. Okay. And Thank you so much for having me. Great to meet you and great to meet everyone else. We'll talk Bye. soon. All right. Cheers. Thank you.